Hello and welcome to the final instalment in the Missing B here on First Time Films. Today we're just going to talk about the vilification and aggressive erasure of the male bisexual from contemporary cinema. We're taking it, we've looked back at the, the history, we've looked at the early 2000s and brought by Mountain as a turning point and now we're going to talk about uh, films that, you know, we're a bit closer to the present day, but don't forget to check out the previous episodes of this series as well as everything else here we have at First Time Films. Now, since the release of Brokeback Mountain, which we talked about in the last episode, uh, society, in particular American society, because we're focusing on Hollywood's uh, cinema here, has progressed even further in its acceptance of homosexuality, a fact reflected in the rights that homosexuals are given under law. Not only did Barack Obama become the first president to support the rights of gay and lesbian couples to marry, but many active politicians and lawmakers within the US also came out as gay in the 2010s. Yay, good stuff. Now, gay marriage was legalised universally across the USA in 2015, reflecting the mood of a time that claimed to be more accepting of the LGBTQ plus community at large. Don Michelle Benash analyses the changing attitude towards gay marriage across the US in her 2012 study, stating that just as increased familiarity or contact with lesbians and gay men has reduced sexual prejudice over time, increased familiarity with the issue of same-sex marriage and with gay men and lesbians, may have increased acceptance for some people on this issue. As such, the elevated societal positioning of homosexual individuals has also led to a heavily increased representation in mainstream cinema, culminating, I think, in many landmark moments towards the latter end of the decade, such as the release of the first film produced by a major Hollywood studio to focus on a gay teenager in 2018's Love, Simon. In fact, Love, Simon, which, as you know, follows the story of a young man who engages in an online relationship with the anonymous Blue, a fellow closeted classmate, proves a strong transition for this study to move on from its acknowledgement of the positive increase in gay representation on screen throughout the 2010s into, into analysing the problems with those portrayals and how they now contribute to the issue of bisexual erasure in mainstream cinema. Now... I want to take this extract of Justin Chang's review of the film Love, Simon as a jumping off point when they said, What Hollywood has been doing with heterosexual romance for more than a century, nipping and tucking it into a glossy, palatable fiction laced with nuggets of emotional truth, is what Love, Simon does. And like the most... Pardon me. And like the most irresistible standard breeders of that tradition, it does show with an eagerness and calculation that I finally found hard to hold against it. That may not be the grandest declaration of love for the film, but like this movie, it'll do. While Chang acknowledges the film's importance, he also recognises it for its potential defects, namely that it tells a homosexual love story through the lens of heteronormativity. Now, this is a problem because by inheriting and adopting elements of heteronormative storytelling, mainstream narratives that feature gay characters at their centre thus inherit the perceived hierarchical position of monosexuality. And because of this, such films have, within their very subject matter, often quite aggressively fought to eliminate bisexuality from the narrative equation in order to make gay mainstream films more palatable to straight audiences. Indeed, this move towards heteronormativity was, was lamented by B. Ruby Rich, who says that the move of gay storytelling to the centre 
of society has led to the loss of the outlawly days of the old, uh, with the marginal becoming the mainstream in the blink of an eye. While there has been progress, male bisexuals still do serve as the most underrepresented sexual group in mainstream cinema in the year as of the year 2020. Also, whilst television has proved a more fertile ground for representations of bisexuality on screen, portrayals of male bisexuals flounder in comparison to their female counterparts. Now, just an arbitrary example of this, in Ariel Sabel's list of the most groundbreaking bisexual characters of all time, only two of the entries are male, and both come from the world of TV, not cinema. Now, this is because, like as we demonstrated with the previous episode on Brokeback Mountain, even in places male bisexuality could occupy within a text, bisexuality has often been erased over the last decade in favour of more palatable monosexual storytelling. However, unlike with Ang Lee's drama, it is not the discourse around the text that is beginning to eliminate bisexuality in the contemporary era, but the film texts themselves. In close reading Call Me By Your Name and Bohemian Rhapsody, which I'm about to do here, this study will attempt to demonstrate this trend, which can be categorised as the vilification and erasure of male bisexuality within films in which it is very evidently present. As will be demonstrated, within these texts not only lies an inherent need to position bisexuality as antagonistic. The first of these examples is the 2017 film Call Me By Your Name. Nominated for several awards and positively received by critics, the film follows the story of 17-year-old Elio, played by Timothy Chalamet, as he falls in love with his father's research assistant, Oliver, played by Army Hammer. Writing after an early viewing of the film at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival, Boyd Van Hoyk gave his positive take in the film's central romance, stating that the couple's physical rapport is an essential part of the novel and the film is extremely essential, with both leads frequently walking around in just swim shorts during the languid summer days presented. Indeed, the intimate physical affection and subsequent romantic affair between Elio and Oliver is very clear within Call Me By Your Name, and thus doesn't require any in-depth analysis specifically for me to prove its existence. What this study is interested in is not only identifying moments of attraction to the same, the, the same sex, uh, within this movie, or the opposite sex within this movie, like I did with Boat by Mountain, but instead to look at the way in which these moments are framed within the film. So it's the context around them, more than identification and proving it this time around. In doing so, this study will find and expose the ways in which Call Me By Your Name vilifies, whether intentionally or unintentionally, opposite sex attraction within the text, thus leading to the erasure of the bisexual from the film. Early in the first act, the teenage Marcia sits in Elio's bed. While their relationship is initially framed as a friendship, it is clear from Marcia's lustful gaze as Elio, as Elio stares out the window um, as Oliver arrives that she is the victim of a yet unrequited lustful feeling for her friend. Instead of noticing this, Elio continues to stare out the window as his father's new re research assistant walks up, immediately setting Marzia up as auxiliary to the central relationship between the two young men here. As the first act progresses and tension develops between the two, um, Elio at this point is clearly jealous of Oliver as a group of girls comment on how good Oliver looks while he plays volleyball. Their desire for one another leads to them seemingly using women as pawns in their game of cat and mouse here. As John Frosch writes in The Hollywood Reporter, 
Whatever attraction exists between the two young men is at this point unacknowledged, though their exchanges have been tinged with erotic tension, as well as rivalry and misapprehension. However, to dismiss their interactions with females within the film is simply part of the rivalry or part of a larger plan to get the other to notice them, would be to dismiss the aggressive sexual chemistry that is on display in these moments, particularly when it comes to Elio and Marzia. At a party soon after Oliver's arrival, Oliver is kissing a young woman on the dance floor as Elio watches on. Not one to be outdone, Elio starts dancing with Marzia whilst deliberately ignoring Oliver's looks. This is followed by Elio undressing in the forest, and Marzia undressing in the forest as well, before intimately swimming with one another in a nearby lake. The next morning, Elio brags to Oliver at the breakfast table that he almost had sex with Marzia the night before, clearly trying to provoke um, his will-they-want-they soon-to-be lover. This sets up a formula that is repeated throughout the narrative of Call Me By Your Name, with Marzia being presented as an obstacle to the relationship between Elio and Oliver, and thus being positioned as an antagonistic entity in the eyes of the audience. Another example of this occurs after Elio, after Elio, after Oliver betrays Elio by not meeting him as planned at Elio's spot. Immediately the next day, Elio calls Marzia and invites her into town, a date which ends with the two kissing before engaging in sexual intercourse. During this, Marzia makes a comment that Elio, Elio is so hard. Uh, the biggest piece of evidence uh, of Elio's sexual attraction towards her. Also, during intercourse, Elio asks several times to reassure him uh, that she is okay, demonstrating an intimacy and tenderness that is usually only reserved for his exchanges with Oliver. This trend continues until after Oliver openly expresses his interest in Elio, Elio cuts off contact from Marzia and ends their relationship. Whilst Elio's passionate scenes with Marzia do serve as definitive evidence of Elio's bisexuality, it's their placement that is of greater interest to this study, as I've already noted. Marzia's intimate scenes with Elio are consistently preceded or proceeded with scenes of conflict with Oliver and vice versa. Therefore, the film, like I've said, either invertedly or inadvertently, invites the, the viewer to draw a correlation between Marzia and the friction of the film's central relationship setting up not only the girl as antagonistic, but also the concept of bisexuality in general. Now, this vilification continues at the film's conclusion, when Oliver reveals to Elio over the phone that he'll be marrying a woman with whom he has had an on and off relationship with next spring. As the credits roll, the camera holds on a close-up of Elio's face as he begins to cry. A great acting from Timothy Chalamet, it has to be said, but it's meant to ac accentuate the earth-shattering implications of this moment as he comes to realise his love affair with Oliver is over forever. As Frost writes, audiences are clearly invited by the film at this moment to let Elio's tears become their own and to share in the grief of the young man in this particular point in the text. However, in doing this, the film once again sets up attraction to the opposite sex and thus Oliver's bisexuality in this case as an antagonistic entity. Unlike with the Del Mar couple in Brokeback Mountain, Call Me By Your Name denies the viewer any insight into the relationship between Oliver and his betrothed. And this proves significant, uh, a significant difference between the two texts by privileging one relationship while also only showing the other as being hurtful to the film's central character, in this case Elio. Call Me By Your Name places male bisexuality firmly as the enemy of their central relationship. 
Unlike with the Delmars, the film gives no insight into the legitimacy of Oliver's feelings for his betrothed and leaves the viewer with the impression that there's maybe a marriage of convenience or he's betraying himself, he's not doing what he really wants to do. We actually don't know that, but the film, you know, wants us to feel that way. As such, this sets up a hypocrisy wherein it implies that bisexuality is aligned with heteronormativity while at the same time reinforcing a position of monosexual privilege within the text, if you see what I'm saying there. By villainising bisexuality through its narrative placement of Elio's intimate moments with Marzia and its reveal of Oliver's engagement, Call Me By Your Name serves as a typical example of how bisexual erasure has seeped its way into the narrative fabric of mainstream American cinema in the last decade. Indeed, this erasure only intensifies when one analyses 2018's Bohemian Rhapsody, the biopic of rock singer Freddie Mercury. Writing for MTV.com in 2018, Alyssa Shulman commended the film's second trailer for serving a glimpse at the human side of the Queen frontman, while also praising the trailer for revealing that Mercury was going to be treated as bisexual within the film. That's what it appeared. As such, Shulman's evaluation only proves to be somewhat true with the final text. Whilst the film does demonstrate Mercury's attraction to both male and females, it also then goes on to aggressively and definitively reject the notion of bisexuality altogether, a rejection that is never challenged nor corrected throughout the rest of the film. This happens at the end of one of Freddie's early gigs with Queen. Um, he is approached by a young woman named Mary Austin and compliments her jacket, which she tells him is from Beaver. Meeting her at the store the next day, Mary remarks she's surprised to, fi- surprised to find Freddie in the women's section of the store, setting up some ambiguity surrounding the front man's identity early into the relationship. Now, a sexual relationship between the two is quickly established before Freddie proposes to Mary, proclaiming her the love of his life. And it's a great song and it's, it's lovely. The songs are not the problem with this movie. The songs are some of my favourite parts. However, upon embarking on a tour of America, Freddie is shown to be cheating on Mary with a number of men, with a montage depicting the singer entering, entering a public gents' restroom to have sex. Now, to have a callback to one of our earlier episodes here, I believe episode two in this series, already we can see problems with this depiction, as bisexuality is immediately correlated with adultery and the sleazy bathroom setting harkens back to the earlier portrayals discussed in something like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, for example. However, this this misrepresentation pales in comparison to what follows. Upon returning from the tour, Freddie sits with Mary watching one of Queen's concerts on television when she turns and asks him what's wrong. Freddie then tells Mary that he's been thinking a lot and believes himself to be bisexual. This moment is potentially the first example I can think of in an American mainstream release, a big release when a character is attempted to come out as bisexual, specifically, explicitly, marking what could have been a truly progressive moment for the representation of male bisexual characters in the medium. However, this is immediately undone. In an interview with Them magazine, two-time Freddie Mercury biographer, biographer? (laughs) Biographer Leslie Ann Jones stating that While it's very much open that the singer lived a bisexual lifestyle, his legacy has been mishandled by those who now control it, stating that Queen's management spent decades trying to convince the world that Freddie was heterosexual while he was alive, but then conceded to his homosexuality after he died. They would not, however, allow for his bisexuality. 
All their efforts to preserve Freddie in memory as effectively a straight man who was in love with one woman, soulmate Mary, but who was corrupted by factions of the music industry and wasn't really gay or ridiculous to me. He was clearly bisexual. And this comes from someone who's wrote two biographies on this man. Now, the rejection of Mercury's bisexual identity, therefore, because of this, permeated into the film. As after Freddie's coming out, Mary immediately responds with, you're gay, Freddie. This statement is not one that Mercury challenges, nor is it challenged throughout the rest of the film, like I've said. After Mary and Freddie divorce, Freddie is from this point on only shown having sexual relationships with men, despite many experts like Jones stating that this was definitively not the case. Thus, Brokeback Mountain marks somewhat of a culmination of the issues discussed in this study. Whilst the presence of bisexuality had to be proved in other texts, bisexual rhapsodies, bohemian rhapsodies rather, <laughs> status is the biopic of an objectively bisexual individual already sets it up as a space within which bisexuality should rightfully be able to occupy. However, in its aggressive repudiation of male bisexuality, Bohemian Rhapsody goes further than the inadvertent villainization of Call Me By Your Name into the more sinister territory of actively choosing to erase the presence of bisexuality from both the film and, more egregiously, from the life of its subject. Now, debate into the portrayal of the Queen frontman's sexual, uh, sexuality subsequently seeped its way into more general news outlets after the release of the movie. However, the conclusion that some of these outlets reached in their evaluation of the issue was mixed and often highlighted the very real need for increased bisexual visibility in mainstream culture. For example, writing for Billboard, Stephen Daw argued that the truth is that there are likely no satisfactory way to portray Freddie Mercury's life in the big screen, as it contains multitudes. Throughout his life, Mercury refused to be defined by one particular aspect of himself and favoured reinvention and change over stasis. No matter how much we think we know about the superstar's life, we're also meant to be left to be wondering some things. Once again, the simplification of storytelling is used as a justification to privilege monosexuality at the expense of bisexual visibility. Daw's assessment here is one echoed by the BBC's Nick Levine, who praised the mystique cultivated around Freddie's identity, but this is nonsense. This argument would be sensible if it was true that the film also took the approach of trying to protect the mystique of the star. But as it been shown, it's, it doesn't. The text doesn't do this. Instead, Bohemian Rhapsody chooses to frame Freddie as gay without any subsequent correction of this fact later in the text. If a film is making a definitive statement with regards to the sexuality of its character, how then can it be considered to be reserving ambiguity? Indeed, much of the coverage from mainstream media regarding the issue seemed to toe the line between recognising the backlash of this moment whilst attempting to preserve the monosexual privilege which has come to characterise depictions of male LGBTQ plus characters in mainstream cinema. Just as with Brokeback Mountain over a decade before, mainstream critics were attempting to navigate away from any meaningful discussion regarding the erasure of the bisexual from these texts. Having said this, 
The blatancy of the film's bisexual erasure seemed to be a step too far for many audience members, who publicly lambasted the film for its interpretation of the Queen singer's sexuality in social media after Rami Malek, the star, the actor portraying Freddie, labelled Freddie as a gay man. Malek stated that there was not enough time to explore the rock icon's sexuality within the film while keeping it to a palatable runtime. However, the issue he's missing here is that it doesn't matter what was left out of Bohemian Rhapsody, such as Mercury's relationship uh, with actress Barbara Valentin, but rather what's already in it. By leaving Mary's assertion that Freddie was not bisexual unchallenged, Bohemian Rhapsody made a decision on Freddie Mercury's sexuality that can't be reversed in any extra textual material attached to the production. As Jude Dry writes, by erasing Mercury's bisexuality, the movie reinforces a heteronormative view of queerness and says it through a straight mouthpiece. Dry's comments were further echoed by Joanne Barkeen, who also lambasts Freddie's coming out on, scene, on screen. Worse than a simple misrepresentation of the relationship, he states, it is an outright denial of who Mercury was. The film addressing Bayerasure with a scene like the one described could have been a powerful statement. Instead, it confirms this dismissal of his sexuality by never allowing Mercury to date or sleep with another woman, even though it is well documented that he had. Perhaps, I think, this moment might be marked as a future turning point in the representation of male bisexuals in mainstream productions. As the blatancy of Bohemian Rhapsody's attempt to erase bisexuality from its narrative seems to have opened up a discussion on, and a debate on bisexual erasure that frankly was not present, I don't think, in the mainstream before the film's release. Whether this will lead to any meaningful change in the representation of bisexual man within future releases remains to be seen as such. Contemporary American cinema faces a problem with its portrayal of male bisexuality. As has been demonstrated, the current trend within mainstream texts is that they will eliminate any possibility of bisexuality within them in order to simplify narratives in hopes of making the films more appealing to a mass audience, whether it be through the inadvertent vilification of the opposite sex attraction in Call Me By Your Name or the more aggressive repudiation of Bohemian Rhapsody, mainstream films that feature gay male leads are adopting more and more heteronormative traits which lead them to privileging monosexuality within their text. Having said this, the strong grassroots reaction to Bohemian Rhapsody's erasure of bisexuality could be a sign that audiences are becoming more aware of this issue. As calls for increased diversity in mainstream American productions increases, the aftermath of Bohemian Rhapsody could potentially signal the beginning of the end of the male bisexual status as an underrepresented group on the big screen. To conclude, the main purpose of this study was to highlight the very particular way in which male bisexuality has been erased from both the contents of mainstream American cinema and the discourse surrounding it throughout the entire history of filmmaking across the Atlantic. By firstly analysing the existing literature surrounding bisexual representations, an alarming trend of bisexual erasure from spaces that the term could legitimately occupy was found. Whether it be through outright omission or unfortunate misrepresentation, film academia and criticism has failed to properly mark bisexuality and has instead chosen to place its analysis of potential bisexual texts within a monosexual framework, 
which often misidentifies the bisexual and strips it of its legitimacy as an independent sexual identity. A symbiotic relationship between the criticism and the corresponding text was thusly acknowledged, and it was prudent to investigate the films themselves and prove the presence of male bisexuality within these works. An exploration of several temporary transvestite films proved the presence of bisexuality in a handful of texts in the pre-2000s, although it was conceded that male bisexuals were not the only group drastically underrepresented in this period of time. This all changed in the early 2000s, and by proving the presence of two male bisexuals within Brokeback Mountain and the subsequent widestream omission of this fact from the corresponding literature, this period was thus marked as a turning point in the history of male bisexuality in mainstream American cinema. No longer was the male bisexual allied with the rest of the community. Instead, monosexuality began to be accepted into the mainstream cinema regardless of gender, and all members of this group contributed to the erasure of the bisexual from narratives that is clearly visible. Thus, a disturbing trend was formed, which continues in contemporary texts I've discussed today. Now, not only is bisexual, uh, bisexuals omitted from the discourse around LGBTQ plus films, but is violently erased as a legitimate sexual option within the films themselves. Just as was proved at the start of this study, the films and the literature surrounding them have gone hand in hand in shaping this inequality. With this in mind, how can the discourse around bisexual portrayals be improved going forward? Richard Maltby's thoughts on the future of film theory from his book Hollywood Cinema can be taken as a starting point when he writes, Film theory has become much more complicated since the 1960s. While it is no longer aims for a total theory of cinema, the field of theoretical cinema studies is viewed as being the process of reconstruction, refiguration or reinvention. What may emerge from this reformulation is an understanding of cinematic theory as a field of activity. Such as an outcome would, however, require the practitioners of different methodologies to acknowledge that civil conversation is more beneficial than contentiousness that has so far marked exchanges between divergent theoretical positions. Now, Mobby seems to lament the fact that new methods of film analysis, such as queer theory, have challenged the already established order of film theory. And whilst he himself does reject the idea of a total theory, he attempts to discredit these new forms of analysis as not civil and overly argumentative. Mobby's stance here is exactly the line of thought that has to be challenged if changes are to be made in the way male bisexuals are represented on screen, in critical reviews and in the surrounding film theory. Without a total reassessment of the way in which male bisexuals are handled within films and extra textual literature up until this point, the erasure will continue because of the symbiotic relationship that we've discussed between the films and the criticism. As James Joseph Dean writes, film and popular cultural representations remain central forces in shaping who we are and how we think about ourselves as individuals and a movement. As such, denying bisexuality a place within text to which it stakes a claim mimics the treatment of the orientation in society, which researchers Brian Dodge, Michael Reese, and Paul H. Jabbard evaluate. They say, although, homosexual, although homosexuality was ultimately declassified as a mental disorder by the APA in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1973, bisexuality per se was never officially classified or declassified as a mental disorder. The concept of bisexuality 
has been either implicitly subsumed under the label of homosexuality or altogether left out of the polarised debate between those who sought to affirm the lives and lifestyles of homosexual individuals and those who sought to pathologise them. This phenomena Dodge describes echoes the positioning of the male bisexual within contemporary mainstream cinema, unnamed and therefore illegitimate. Therein lies the purpose of this study, the explanation of exactly why the male bisexual has become the missing bee of mainstream Hollywood cinema traces back a history of misrepresentation and erasure that can only be corrected if a true commitment is made to actively name bisexuality where and when it happens. To borrow Maltby's words, film theory is a field of activity and it's clear from the findings of this study that more effort needs to be made to burst the heteronormative monosexual bubble which has led to the omission of the male bisexual from the narrative of mainstream American cinema up until this point in time. I hope you've enjoyed this series. Hopefully we can do something else like this soon on the channel. And I'll see you later on. Goodbye.